0: You're listening to The Word of Hope, a radio ministry of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Our preacher is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller with today's
1: Word of Hope. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear Saints, Jesus ends this fantastic story and parable of the Pharisee and tax collector's prayers with this conclusion, with this punchline. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Rather than the other. Now, this is one of the few times that we see the word justification in the Gospels. And this is especially jarring to us because this word, justification, is a legal word. It's a word that you would use in the courtroom. To be justified is to be declared righteous by a judge. We might think of, I think as close as we can get is the idea of being acquitted or of being pardoned you know the governors of, this, of all the states and the president of the United States have this authority to pardon people? They always do it at the end of their terms where they can't get in too much trouble. <laughs> and they pardon all their buddies and they get to go out of jail. Now, when a person is pardoned, their crimes are erased. And, and, and even more than that, you're restored. If you, for example, commit a felony, you, you, your citizenship status has changed. You can't vote and things like this. But if the governor or if the president pardons you, then you're restored as a citizen. You can vote again and all the other rights of a citizen. Now, the word justification is like that, but it's even more than that. When the Bible talks about being justified, it doesn't, it, don't, it doesn't only talk about taking away or covering the sins that we've committed, but it is an application to us and to our name, the righteousness and perfection of Jesus. I've heard people define justification this way, just as if you'd never sinned. And that's catchy, but it's only the first part of justification. It's also just as if you had perfectly kept God's law like Jesus did. That application, that imputation of the righteousness of Jesus is what it means to be justified. Now, I think the best verse for this teaching is 2 Corinthians five twenty one, which says this. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is a truly stunning thing, that you, dear saints, have the righteousness of God. It's this, this is more than the righteousness of Adam and Eve before they sinned. It's 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 overflowing. It's 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 more than that. It's the perfect obedience of Jesus. Everything that he did right and everything that he never did wrong, this is given to you. Now, this is a mind-blowing truth of the scripture. And even more mind blowing is that the Bible teaches that we sinners have this righteousness, this perfection applied to our account, not by earning it not by working for it, not by paying for it, but it, it comes to us purely as a perfectly free gift from God. That we are justified, not by our works or our efforts, but by faith, and faith alone. Now, this is the great theme of the entire Bible, but with great clarity we can hear Paul preaching it in Romans 3. This is Romans three twenty-one and following. Now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as uh, to be a propitiation, a a, a atoning sacrifice by His blood, to be received by faith. So that justification is the victory of Jesus on the cross, His death and His resurrection being brought to you, to your name. And this is truly life-changing stuff. When, when, When this gets a hold of your heart, this teaching grabs a hold of you, you can't look at the world or the Bible or yourself or God or death or other people or anything else the same. It changes everything. That when we believe this promise of Jesus, we have it. We are declared righteous. This doctrine of justification is what the Reformation was about. Dr. Luther always was saying stuff like, the doctrine of justification is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. It's central, not only in the Scriptures, but also in our teaching. But here's the thing. This again is courtroom language. This is what, this is the justification is the kind of thing that you would expect to hear if we were talking about a person who went to court. Something like this. Two men went to the judge to plead their case. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood before the judge with confidence and boasted of his innocence and even more in his goodness. And then the tax collector, a real scoundrel, Stands at the back of the courtroom. All the evidence of his crimes is known by everyone. And he's crushed with all the wrongs that he's done. And he, he can do nothing but plead guilty and beg for mercy. And then after the judge hears these two court cases, he's going to make some sort of declaration. Now, that's the kind of parable that you expect to hear with the punchline, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. But look, Jesus is not talking about two men going to court. He's talking about two men going to church. These two men are not standing before a judge and a jury. They are standing before God. And these two men are not making a closing argument in a court case. They're praying. Now, this is important. If you want to have a sense of what's happening when you come to church, when you are gathered here in this place, then this is a very important connection to make. The divine service is a court case. This is an outpost of the heavenly courtroom. Now, I think this is, this is a helpful thing to have on, on all sorts of really kind of basic questions. Like, If we have, if we're having trouble figuring out what clothes to wear to church, then we ask, what, what clothes would I wear when I go to court? (laughs) And that answers the question. Or when we have questions about why when we come to church, are we always standing up and sitting down? Will you see the same thing when you go to a courtroom and the judge comes in the room and the bailiff says, all rise or please stand? I don't know exactly what they say. And everyone stands. The same thing happens when we read the gospel lesson. We stand as Jesus speaks to us. Or people stand in court to address the judge. Or they stand to hear the verdict read. And so we stand to pray and to hear the absolution. Now, you can see if a church has lost its understanding of the doctrine of justification when the manners of the church service look a lot less like the manners of a courtroom and more like the manners of a Friday night concert, you see? But this manners business is just a side note. The the real thing that we want to get at is that when we come to church, we are standing before the judge, the judge of the universe. And we are entering into a trial. And just like every earthly trial, this trial begins with a pleading. How do you plead? And you've got two options. Guilty or not guilty. And these are the two options that Jesus has put before us in the parable. You've got the Pharisee option and you've got the tax collector option. You can stand with boldness and confidence and you can plead your own goodness, not guilty. Or you can bow down in humility, beating your chest and say, guilty as charged. Now, please listen carefully. You and I are naturally inclined to the Pharisee option. Your sinful flesh and mine too wants to stand before God in the strength of your own works, your efforts, your goodness. Now, you know about this amazing thing. You've seen this over and over that when you go and you ask people if they'll go to heaven when they die, almost everybody says yes. And when you ask them why, they say, because I'm a good person. But what you ask them about all of your sins, and you know that there was a good reason for every one of them. And this is true for you. Now, can you think of a sin that you have committed this week, that you have already cr- not that you have not already crafted an excuse for? <laughs> I mean, think about that. It's an amazing thing that as soon as our conscience wants to charge us as guilty, we start making excuses for ourselves. Well, they cut me off. <laughs> They started it. They deserved it. I earned it. Everybody needs a little break. Nobody was hurt. I meant well. You can't do everything. Nobody's perfect. They should get a job. Am I my brother's keeper? Do you know this constant conversation that's happening in your heart? This, my friends, is the Pharisee option. This is the not guilty option. This is the work that your sinful flesh is constantly busy with, and it is the work of self-justification, of defending your own goodness, of not letting any sin stick to your name. Now we know, we're Christians, we know that we should choose the tax collector option, that we should, that we should plead guilty before the Lord, but the constant conversation of our own hearts is excuses and concessions and hiding and justifying ourselves. And this is bad. When we go this route, when we plead not guilty, we have Moses and Jesus himself standing there to accuse us, preaching the law to us, holding up the mirror of the Ten Commandments, which crushes us. When we plead innocent, then all the evidence to the contrary is gathered. And what a frightful thing this is to imagine. And this plea of innocence is overturned. And we are condemned as sinners. And we are sentenced to death that lasts forever. So that for our own good, Jesus puts before us the other option. The example of the tax collector. The tax collector, the worst of sinners, the person surely to be condemned in court. The thing about this tax collector is, is that if, if he would walk into the court and plead not guilty, then the judge and everybody else would laugh at him. <laughs> He's guilty, and God knows it, and everyone around him knows it, and he knows it, and so he stands there in the back of the service with the knowledge of his own guilt, weighing him down, crushing him, and he enters the plea, God be merciful to me, a sinner, and this, dear friends, is how we come to church. Can you imagine? I, I don't know if we should do this one Sunday. When, the, when you come to church and the usher greets you there at the back door to hand you a bulletin, he asks you the question, how do you plea, innocent or guilty? <laughs> but you can imagine that, coming to church. And the first words out of our mouths are the answer. I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto thee all my sins and iniquity. I'm guilty. I'm throwing in my lot with the tax collector. I'm a sinner, a lost and condemned person, deserving the Lord's temporal and eternal punishment. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And when we enter this guilty plea, something incredible happens. The devil stands against us, trying to accuse us. But Moses steps away, and Jesus stands next to us as our advocate and friend. And he presents as evidence to the court, not your sin and not your failures, but his blood, his death and resurrection. And this evidence stands. And you are acquitted. You are forgiven. You are set free. Sunday after Sunday, day after day, the judge of the universe hears your case and makes the judgment. He declares you righteous. I tell you, says Jesus, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And that man, dear friends, that man is you. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.